0: Hello, and thanks
1: for joining us here for episode 483 with Nir Ayal. Nir is talking about how we get distracted and what you can do to become indistractable. We talked to him once before, and we got more good stuff to share. So you'll learn, one, why mainstream productivity advice doesn't work, the four steps to becoming indistractable, and three, the real motivation for all human behavior. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items you've referenced, it's also at yourjob.com F483. Now, here's Nir's story. Nir I.L. writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT technology dubbed Nir, the prophet of habit-forming technology. Nir founded two tech companies since 2003 and has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hassel Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. He's the author of the best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming products, and most recently, Indistractable, How to Control Your Tension and Choose Your Life. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, Near's writing has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, and Psychology Today. Near is also an active investor in habit-forming technology. Some of his past investments include Refresh.io, acquired by LinkedIn, WorkLife, acquired by Cisco, Eventbrite, Anchor.fm, and many others. Nier attended the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Emory University. So, Thanks to Nier for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free now here is near near welcome back to the how to be awesome at your job podcast it is so good to be back thank you well i think we have a lot of fun talking here i mean it's funny your book wasn't even close to out but we we were already talking about it last time so i'm excited to dig into greater detail here yeah me too (laughs) well what can i tell you we got a lot to talk about since last time Well, you know, we do, uh, but first I need to at least touch upon your habit of running barefoot in New York City. What is this? Isn't that gross and dangerous? Oh, yeah. This is weird, right? Let's
2: see. So a few years ago, first of all, I want you to know, I have for my, almost my entire life hated physical activity of any sort shape or form. And then I read this book called Born to Run, which is this book that explores or has this hypothesis that the way we we actually killed animals wasn't by, you know, arrows and spears at first, it was that we evolved the ability to run after our prey. And in fact, there are people in Africa still to this day who do what's called subsistence hunting, they run down animals, and that's that's their dinner. Long way of saying, I just thought that was super cool. (laughs) And I thought, well, if that's how we were born to run right to borrow from the title of this book. Well, maybe I'll give it a shot. And part of the reason I always hated running was that I constantly had knee pain and joint pain and shin splints. And uh, I decided to first use minimalist shoes, you know, very, very soft, uh, very, very small soled shoes. And then I actually moved to barefoot barefoot, like nothing on my feet. And this is the first time that I have run without pain. I mean, I, I still get, you know, winded right if <laughs> i run for a long time or i run fast but i don't have any more muscular or uh, pain or, or you know uh, joint pain and so i've been doing it for about uh four years now and uh i moved to new york city a few years ago and i i kept it up around here and believe it or not i i get a lot of funny stares and funny looks but
1: thankfully haven't had any injuries well, that's great. I guess I'm just imagining, the no offense to New York, you know, coming from Chicago, like a broken 40 bottles on yeah. the
2: sidewalk and you go, ah! You know what we've done here? You know, Indistractable, my new book, has so many pearls of wisdom. Now that people have heard this crazy thing I've just told you, they're not going to listen to
0: anything yeah, else I say. Yeah, shot.
2: <laughs> exactly. This is not what the book is about at all. But I think if there's one... Thread that does run through a lot of different things I do is that I I love to challenge convention, right? I love to overturn apple carts. And in an age where you know the entire time I've grown up, I've always been told that we need lots of cushion beneath our feet in order to protect us and help us run faster. And you know Airs and Reeboks, they all tell us that that's what's needed. And so I just really love this way that actually turns out. That these thick-soled shoes may actually be part of the problem for a lot of runners. Not for everyone, right? If you like to run and you like a lot of cushion and you're not having any pain or discomfort, well, then you know, good on you. Keep doing it. But for me, it wasn't working, and uh, I tried something else. And in my case, it was running shoeless. Okay. And by the way, I don't run everywhere in New York. Like there's a, you know, there, there are paths that you can run on where it's relatively clean and relatively safe.
1: All right. So you've never had a nasty shard of anything get wedged into your foot. And cause it to bleed,
2: don't jinx me, bro., <laughs> but so far so good no i've I've never had anything because what what's interesting about the way we run is that if you run correctly, you should land very softly on the ground. when you run without shoes, you actually can't run incorrectly. It hurts you feel it immediately. you get this this feedback right away, and so I don't land very hard on the ground. It's amazing how our feet have evolved to prevent injury,
1: okay. Uh, well, I'm satisfied. Thank you. <laughs>
2: Take my word for it. <laughs> you don't have to do it. It's okay.
1: <laughs> All right. So you've been put a lot of time and research into uh, this notion of becoming indistractable. Uh, can you share with us kind of why did this become a passion point for you and, and you've chosen to invest your energies here? Yeah. So I wrote Hooked
2: about five years ago, this book, which is subtitled How to Build Habit Forming Products. And that book is really about this question that I had at the time of how do we get people to use our products and services? You know, so many products and services out there are wonderful. They're great. They improve people's lives if they would only use them. And so I wanted to understand the psychology behind how some of the world's most habit-forming products do what they do, right? How do companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Snapchat and Slack how are they designed to get us to keep coming back? And wouldn't it be great if we could take that same secret sauce and apply it to all sorts of products and services, right? To build healthy habits. And so that's what Hooked was all about. I looked for this book. I couldn't find it, so I decided to write it myself. I taught for many years at Stanford, at the Graduate School of Business, and at the Hesoplatner Institute of Design. And uh, that, that was the subject of my first book. Now, shortly after that book was written, about, eh, about a year and a half, two years after that book was written, I found that my behavior was changing in ways I didn't always like, to be honest with you. Um, I remember this one occasion. I was sitting with my daughter, and we had this afternoon together. And we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could do together. And one of the activities was to ask each other this question. And I'll never forget the question. The question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the question, but I don't remember her answer, (laughs) Because when she was telling me the answer to this question, I was busy on my phone. I was checking some bit of internet nonsense. And so that's when I realized, wait a minute, I wrote the book on how to build habit forming technology. I understand the guts of how these companies do what they do, right? I teach companies how to build healthy habits. And yet here I am getting unhealthfully hooked myself. And so I thought, wow, if I'm if i struggling with this, then I bet a lot of other people are struggling with this as well. And this was several years ago, but now we definitely see that. At the time when I wrote Hooked, I had to convince people that Facebook and and Slack and uh, WhatsApp and Instagram and all these products, you know, didn't just get lucky. That in fact, they were designed with consumer psychology in mind, that consumer psychology really matters, that these people understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. Today, I don't have to sell that anymore. People know this is true. And uh, if anything, the problem is we overuse these technologies. So that's when I decided, you know, as I do in the case of every time I, I have an idea for a book, I read everything I could possibly find on the topic of distraction, of psychology, of addiction. And what every other book said, the conventional wisdom, what we all hear today, is that technology is the problem. That these companies are addicting us, that it's melting our brain, that it's hijacking us. And the more I dove into that psychology... I realized it it wasn't actually true. Uh, Not only that, not only was it not true, it didn't work, right? And they all basically say the same thing. They say, like, basically, the problem is the technology, right? Cut it out of your life, do a digital detox, go on a 30-day whatever retreat, uh, just get it out of your life, and that'll solve the problem. So I did that. I followed the advice. I did what they told me. I, I went on the digital detox. I bought a a feature phone that didn't have any apps on it. I bought a word processor on eBay from the 1990s. They don't even make anymore, but it has no internet connection, and uh, that's what I used to do my writing. And it didn't work because I still got distracted. I would see, you know, I would start to write, and writing's really hard for me. Right? It doesn't come naturally. And I would, you know, say, oh, this is really hard. Maybe I'll just read a read this book on the bookcase for for a few minutes because that that's kind of related to my work." Or my desk needs organizing. Or I should probably take out the trash. And I, I found myself constantly getting distracted. And that's a big problem because the fact is, if you want to do creative work, in my field, it's it's writing, but no matter what creative endeavor you want to do, without focus, without doing what it is you decide you're going to do, nothing gets done, right? All of your amazing genius ideas stay stuck in your head. You have to produce. And this idea that the technology was the problem, one, it didn't work, two, is was super impractical because my audience and I... Live online, right? I need these tools to reach people who might be interested and in, who could be helped by the work I'm doing. So, all in all, I just was really disappointed with the current solutions. And so, I started to dive into the psychology of why do we get distracted in the first place? I mean, to me, that's such a fascinating question. Aristotle and Socrates had this question 2,500 years ago this question of akrasia, they called it, this tendency to do things against our better interest. So, the question is why is it that despite the fact that we know what to do, we don't do the right thing, right? We all know, you know, there's tons of self-help books in the nutrition space and they all basically say the same thing, right? Like we know how to get healthy, uh, workplace productivity. We know how to be productive, just do the work, right? We, we know how to have better relationships, be fully present with those you love. Why don't we do it? And so that's really the, the question I seek to answer in Indistractable. Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? And what would life be like if we were Indistractable?
1: Okay. Well, so that's really juicy there. So this is an ancient problem. The the human being becoming distracted and pursuing things that uh, are not in our, our best interests. So, uh, the devices, I guess, uh, near you're somewhat off the hook for, uh, addicting us all the more and, and destroying our lives. Uh, they are not 100% to blame. And, and your share in that is also, I guess, uh, reduced as well. So let's hear it. What can be done with regard to this? human tendency to defeat distractions, be they digital or otherwise.
2: Yeah. Well, I will tell you that uh, in this day and age, the technologies have gotten so good uh, and so pervasive as they have become more persuasive that the world, if you don't know these techniques, if you don't become indistractable, they'll get you. Not only that, they'll get your work colleagues, they'll get your kids, like the cost of living in an age... Where there's so many good things to explore, whether it's online, whether it's in social media, on YouTube, there's so many interesting things to explore. It's I don't think it's necessarily bad, per se. It's just that if you don't have these techniques, it is easier than ever to succumb to distraction. So it's not your fault that these things exist. But here's the, the sad reality, it is our responsibility. This stuff is not going away. And if you, know, if, if you wait for legislators to do something about it, if you hold your breath waiting for the geniuses in Washington to, to fix the problem, you're gonna suffocate. So what I learned in this process is actually a very empowering and hopeful message that we have more power than we know. That in fact, by calling these things addictive, by thinking that they're hijacking our brain, we are actually, ironically, Making it so it's called learned helplessness that when we say, Oh, those algorithms are hijacking my brain, and it's addictive and it's, especially when people talk about their kids by the way it's fascinating right they're they're absolutely convinced that there's nothing they can do about it, that these kids are just you know addicted to these video games and in fact it, you know there's been many studies done on people who are actually pathologically addicted to various substances uh, like alcohol, like various drugs, and it turns out the number one determinant of whether someone recovers after rehab is not their level of physical dependency it's actually their belief in their own power to change and so that's really the message if there's one message of this book it's to look at the root causes of distraction and then do something about those root causes not the proximate causes starting with and this is kind of i'll give you a i'll just name the four parts of the indistractable model and then we can dive deeper into the parts that interest you So the indistractable model has these four parts. So I want you to kind of picture in your mind here a number line, right? So it it extends left to right, you know, extends out from, you know, into infinity, let's say. So you have this horizontal line on one side, on the right side, we have traction. Traction is any action that you take that draws you towards what you want in life. Okay, The word traction actually comes from the Latin trahare, which means to draw towards. So things that you do, actions you take that move you towards what you want in life. What's the opposite of traction? Distraction, right? The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is anything you do that moves you away from what you want in life, right? So it's anything you do unintentionally. So the idea here is I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to be the moral police and tell you video games are bad, but watching a sports match is is somehow good, right? If it's something that you want to do, whether it's check YouTube, you know, look at Reddit, uh, watch sports games on TV, whatever it is you want to do, if you plan to do that activity, right? There's that, that quote, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. As long as you plan to do that, it's traction, If it takes you off track, right? If you were with your daughter, like I was, and I plan to spend time with her, and then I get distracted with my phone, well, that took me off track, took me, it did make me do something I didn't want to do. So that's distraction. Okay. So that's traction and distraction. Now you've got this horizontal number line. Now imagine two arrows pointing to the center of that number line. And these two arrows represent the things that either lead us to traction or distraction. They are two types of triggers. We have external triggers and we have internal triggers. External triggers are the things that prompt us to action in our environment that move us towards traction or distraction. So, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything that moves you to traction or distraction. What also moves us to traction or distraction is the internal triggers, which aren't around us, they're not in our, in our environment. These are cues to action that start from within us. And what's probably the biggest revelation that I had writing this book over the past five years was that distraction starts from within because all human behavior, all human behavior, everything we do is not motivated for the reason most people think. Most people think that motivation is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. This is called Freud's pleasure principle. Not true. Turns out we are not motivated by the desire to seek pleasure and avoid pain. Neurologically speaking, it's pain all the way down. All human motivation is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. It's called the homeostatic response. So uh, physically, right? If you think about, okay, you're, you feel cold, you put on a jacket. If you're hot, again, you go indoors, you feel hot, you take it off. If you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs, you eat. Uh, when you're stuffed, okay, you, that doesn't feel good, you stop eating. So those are physiological sensations. This is called the homeostatic response. The same is true to psychological sensations, right? So when you feel uh lonely, what do you do? You check Facebook or maybe Tinder. <laughs> if you feel uncertain about something, before you scan your brain, what do you do? You check Google. If you are bored, what do you do? You check Reddit or news or YouTube or all these different products to satiate that uncomfortable emotional state. Even the pursuit of pleasure in fact Desire is uncomfortable, right? There's a reason we say love hurts, right? Because even wanting something is psychologically uncomfortable. So this means if we believe that all behaviors is prompted by the desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. And if we want to do the things we say we're going to do in business and life and our creative endeavors, we have to understand how to master these internal triggers. So that's the first step master the internal triggers. The second step is make time for traction. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. And the fourth step is to prevent distraction with pacts. So that's basically the outline of this book. Lots of tactics, that's the overall strategy.
1: Well, I'm fascinated by this principle here that uh, it's all pain avoidance. And and I guess you're putting desire in the category of, of pain, Because I'm thinking, well, we certainly do things just for the fun of it. Like, I mean, I'm thinking of going on a honeymoon. I'm thinking when I went to Hawaii with my wife, it's like there wasn't something we were trying to escape. I mean, yeah, it was cold in Chicago, (laughs) but we were primarily thinking, oh, Hawaii, it's going to be sunny and fun and uh, enjoyable and we'll just get to be together. And so I guess I'm just wrapping my brain around this notion that it is, in fact, all pain avoidance as opposed to pleasure seeking.
2: Yeah, so it's, it's a perfect example. So why does the brain make us feel good? If the idea is that we have this pleasure response, right, things do, we, we definitely have this response to pleasure. But in fact, it turns out that we don't do things because they feel good. We do things because they felt good in the past. We have a memory, an association that creates a desire, a longing, an uncomfortable itch that we seek to scratch because we have this memory of how it felt in the past. And that's the driver. Even the pursuit of pleasure is itself an escape from discomfort.
1: Intriguing. So because I've had previous experiences of going on vacation or taking a break from responsibility uh, and just hanging out with people I enjoy the notion, because I'm recalling that, I'm experiencing a desire, a form of discomfort, because like that is the thing I want, and I'm trying to escape that desire by doing it. Right. Exactly.
2: Exactly. So that longing, that wanting, that craving is, in fact, what's driving your behavior, driving your action.
1: And I'm intrigued. Now, I've heard in the realm of marketing, for example, that it, it, it seems like it's almost always a better pathway in terms of effectiveness to deal in pain than as opposed to, to pleasure. So I, I've read that before. I don't know. You do a lot of research. Can you lay it on me, some studies that, that point to this truth?
2: Yeah. So in, it's not that we create pain. That's sadistic, right? We would never want to create pain in our customers. It's that the role of all products and services is to scratch some kind of itch, right? If, if the customer doesn't have any kind of discomfort, there's nothing for us to do. They don't need anything right so if you're cool if you're chill you don't need anything right so for example i was on a flight this is a a, a terrific example of the point i was on a, a transcon flight and there was a guy in the aisle seat across from me and he was clearly passed out right he had the pillow under his neck he had a, a blanket on he was sound asleep and the flight attendant comes by and she says to him sir now he's sleeping right can't hear so she says it again she says it a little louder she says sir he doesn't wake up. Finally, she says it even louder. She says, sir. He wakes up. He says, Whoa, what, what is it? She says, what would you like to drink, sir?
1: No. <laughs> so,
2: and this is a perfect example of did, would he want to drink? Yes, when he's thirsty, not when he's asleep. And so this is a terrific example of how, yes, we want things, right? He would want that that water, but only if he felt the internal trigger, only if he had that thirst and that drove his desire to ask for the drink. Uh, when he's sleeping, he didn't feel the internal trigger. He didn't feel that pain point. And so he didn't need anything to help him out in that circumstance.
1: Okay. Well, so I'd love to talk about some of these internal triggers and and pain uh, management things on the inside. Because I think the external stuff, you're right. I think we've heard a lot of that, like put the technology away, you know, avoid the temptations, the distractions, lock it in another room or leave it in your bag or your car or, or, or whatnot. And I think I, I'm noticing more and more in my own life, it's sort of like, you know, if there is a bowl of chips in the kitchen, I will probably eat a chip. If there's a bowl of grapes in the kitchen, I will probably eat a grape. And and there you have it. Just that simple. It's sort of like the environment itself is extending an invitation. Would you care for a grape? Or would you exactly, care for a yeah. chip? It's like, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I would, thank you.
2: So <laughs> if it's right there, absolutely. So this is called Lewin's equation. And we've known this for for decades and decades now that, that our behavior is shaped by the person and their environment. And so the easier something is to do, the more likely people are to do it. So if the external trigger is right there in front of you, it's more likely that you will do that behavior. It doesn't mean you're, you're powerless. And so this is, this is a super, super important point. It is true the world today is more potentially distracting than ever. And by the way, it's only gonna get worse. If you think things are distracting now, wait a few years until we have virtual reality and God knows what else technologies we're gonna have. However, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. So as powerful as these technologies are, as powerful as these algorithms and these, these things that we're you know, carrying around with us every day in our pockets, these, these mini computers, as powerful as they are, we are more powerful if we plan ahead. If we don't plan ahead, they're going to get you, right? Just like that bowl of M&M's, it's going to be sitting there waiting for you. But we can plan ahead. We can take actions today that prevent us from getting distracted in the future.
1: Well, what are some of these most highly leveraged actions we can take today to help ourselves in the future?
2: Yeah. So the first step has to be mastering these internal triggers that we talked about that very first step. And this requires there's only two ways to do that. We either fix the problem, right? We fix the source of the discomfort, or we learn methods to cope with the discomfort. I give people lots of techniques that they can use that actually come from acceptance and commitment therapy that come from a few other techniques. It really comes down to three things to master these internal triggers to cope with these uncomfortable emotional states. It's either reimagining the internal trigger, reimagining the task, or reimagining our temperament. And there's all kinds of tools and and techniques that we can use to do those three things. One of the things we need to do, one of my favorite things that we need to remember, is not to believe these myths around our temperament. This is probably one of the most common self-defeating behaviors we see. You might have heard of this concept of ego depletion, this idea that your willpower is depleted. It's kind of like a gas tank. Mm -hmm. Uh, This uh, got me all the time. I used to come home from work. I've had a long day. I deserve to relax. So I switch on Netflix and, uh, you know, I've got no more willpower left. It's been depleted. So I'll open up that, that pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And it turns out that this idea that willpower is a depletable resource got a lot of credibility at some point. Uh, there was some studies done you know, a, a while ago now, uh, more than a decade ago, but it turns out it's not true, that these studies did not replicate. This idea of ego depletion is simply not true, except in one case. That one case is when you believe it is true. <laughs> So if you were the kind of person who believed that they were spent, that their willpower is a limited resource, you behaved accordingly. So one of these lessons around reimagining your temperament is to stop believing these myths that you have an addictive personality or you have a short attention span or that your willpower is depleted, unless, of course, you actually do have a pathology, which is the case for some people, but of course, not the majority of people these traits, these uh, beliefs that we have that our temperament is somehow making us do these things are really self-defeating. We have to reimagine our temperament. That's just one technique among many, many, many others in the book around mastering these internal triggers.
1: Well, could you give me perhaps the most compelling uh, study or or evidence bit about willpower being depletable is is a myth? And, And in fact, it can go on and on and on.
2: Right. So the right way to look at it is not, it turns out, so this was an idea that was proposed around, okay, well, if that's the case, if willpower is not a depleting, a pletable resource, then what is it? It turns out that willpower, and this was proposed by Michael Inzlish, he said that willpower is simply an emotion, right? We wouldn't say, oh, I was having a great time until I ran out of happy, right? That's ridiculous. So we don't run out of an emotion. And so similarly, the The antidote then is to not give ourselves this excuse that we you know that we deserve a break that we've run out of willpower, but rather that this is a passing feeling, and so I give techniques in the book around how we can deal with these uncomfortable emotional states, just like any internal trigger, we can use these techniques from acceptance and commitment therapy, such as the 10-minute rule, which I use probably every single day. <laughs> 10-minute rule says that when you're about to give in to something, right right before it, whether it's that piece of chocolate cake, or uh, I'm just going to check out something on YouTube, or look at my email, when, even though I've I've planned something else to do, we give ourselves 10 minutes. 10 minutes to let ourselves feel that uncomfortable emotional state, try and get to the bottom of what's creating that emotional state, boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, whatever it might be. And then in 10 minutes, if we still want that thing, we can give into it. So that's just one tactic among many. In fact, I, I have people kind of track their distractions throughout the day so that they can figure out the three categories of, is it an external trigger that caused the distraction, an internal trigger that caused the distraction, or Was it a planning problem? The planning problems are the the things that we didn't properly plan for in our day. This is probably one of the most common problems that I see these days is that in this day and age, if you don't plan your time, someone else will. Mm -hmm. And so you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it is distracting you from, right? Think about that for a minute. How can we call something a distraction if we didn't plan something else to do with that time, if we didn't plan the traction in our day? So I actually have an online tool that I built specially for this. Anybody can access it. It's free where you can go and actually plan a template for your ideal week. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to follow it rigidly. And if you go off track, you're going to beat yourself up. No, no, no. That's not the answer. The idea is that you have a template that you can look at and say, okay, what did I plan to do with my time? Even if it is going on YouTube or Reddit or whatever, what did I plan to do with my time? And if I did anything, that's not that that's a distraction. But you can't do that unless you make time for traction, unless you do what I call turning your
1: values into time. Okay, so we got the, the reimagining there with uh, the willpower consideration. And how do we do the reimagining of trigger and task? Right, so
2: reimagining the trigger is all about changing the, our perception of that uncomfortable emotional state and this this comes back to self-talk you know a lot of people uh, when they feel these uncomfortable emotional states they've been conditioned uh, because of many of these distractions all around us to impulsively jump to it and the idea instead is to reimagine how we think about those internal triggers so that when we feel the uncomfortable state we tell ourselves a different narrative And and people tend to fit into two different kinds of narratives i call it either the blamers or the shamers the blamers say, oh, it's the distraction doing it to me. It's the technology's fault. It's doing it to me. The shamers say, oh, there's something wrong with me, right? Uh, something wrong about my temperament, as we talked about earlier. And the answer is neither of those things, right? The, the answer is that it's not about blaming or shaming. These are actions that we take and our actions can take. It can change, that is. So if we respond differently to these internal triggers, if we see them as, okay, this is difficult, this is boring, this is hard, I'm stressed right now, but that's how we get better. That's, that's my path to improving this skill, for example. It's a much healthier way to look at it. And then reimagining the task, I draw from the work of Ian Bogos, who's done this amazing research around how we can make anything fun. And he actually hates, you know, we probably you remember as a kid, right the Mary Poppins method of putting a spoonful of sugar on stuff. And he Mm -hmm. says, that's actually terrible advice that we don't want to, you know, layer. Because sugar's unhealthy. Because Sugar's terribly (laughs) unhealthy, right, exactly. And it's a purely extrinsic reward. And we know the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic rewards when something is extrinsically pleasurable. We don't stick with it for that long. We do it just for the reward. It's the only reason we do it. So when you pay people, for example, to draw a picture, if you pay them, they actually draw less creative art than if you say, hey, just, you know, do your best at drawing something creative. Uh, Because they're doing it for the extrinsic reward as opposed to the pleasure of doing something creative. So what, what BOGO suggests is to focus more intently on the task, add constraints to the task. So that is in fact the element of fun. And fun, ironically enough, doesn't have to be enjoyable. Now, that sounds weird, right? Isn't fun supposed to be enjoyable? Well, not necessarily. We can use this idea of fun, focusing more intently on something, looking for the variability, what changes in the task. We can look for those elements to help us focus. And if we can focus on something, we can stick with it longer,
1: we become better at it, and we do our best work. And can you give us an example of how you would add some constraints or find the variability to make it more enjoyable?
2: Sure. So for example, in, in my work, so as a writer, writing is really, really hard. <laughs> I constantly feel this internal trigger of boredom of stress, you know, is, this, is what I'm doing good enough. And so the idea here is that I want to focus on the task more intently. So what I do when I whenever I feel myself feeling stressed about my work, I instead Look for the variability. And this comes straight out of the techniques that many of these tech companies are using to keep us engaged, right? It's called a variable reward. What makes a slot machine engaging, what makes uh, television something that we can't stop watching is the variability, the uncertainty. So in my work, for example, when I find myself getting bored or stressed about the work I'm doing, I try and reassess what is the mystery here i try and look for the uncertainty and i add in my own variable reward right my own intermittent reinforcement and so what drives me to do my writing in my case but of course it can be different for anyone's case is the uncertainty the mystery so you have to add some kind of challenge that you can put into the experience that makes it variable the variability is what keeps us engaged actually this is interesting it comes back full circle to where we started the conversation around my my crazy barefoot running habit so what you know it turns out that our brains are built to look for these variable rewards if you can imagine what kept our primal ancestors hunting Right, what kept them running and running and seeking was, in fact, the variability. Right, where was the animal going to go? How fast was it moving? That was all these variable elements that are core to our DNA that keeps us hunting, that keeps us searching. So we can harness that primal instinct by looking for the variability where it may not on the surface exist.
1: And so, in your writing example, when you're trying to add variable rewards for yourself, what are you choosing? You're looking for the mystery. And, and so and what else are you doing? So I'm, I'm looking for the mystery and
2: focusing more intently on the task. So it becomes about, you know, how can I answer this question? Where will this lead me? You can also add various constraints. Uh, Bogus calls this a, a sandbox, so to speak. That, in fact, you know, the worst thing a writer can look at, the worst thing an artist can see is a blank canvas or a blank page. And so what you want to do is to try and add constraints, a time constraint, for example, some kind of constraint around how you're working to add that sandbox element to reimagine the task.
1: So, so time is one. What would be some other constraints?
2: Yeah, so output can be a, a constraint as well that you add. How quickly can I do this task based on how much output is created? All sorts of ways. So Bogus talks about how cutting his grass is a great example that I, I talked to him about. You know, cutting your grass is not something that you would expect to be very entertaining, right? That's something that typically people find as a chore. Well, he got super into cutting his grass. He learned about which type of seed grows best in his particular climate and the different mechanisms of cutting the grass. And it it seems totally ridiculous at first until you realize that people can focus intently on all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Think about that car buff that can't stop obsessing and thinking about his cars right they're totally into it right because they focus more intently on it think about the barista who's crazy about coffee and he wants to know every little detail uh, think about the person who's a knitter and it just is is loved and is, t- is totally engaged with all the the variability and the intricacies of creating something now for most of us these specific tasks are work but for these people they've harnessed the power of reimagining the task so that it becomes play it becomes fun. Now, by the way, everything I've just told you is only one of four parts, we didn't get to Mm -hmm. uh, how to make time for traction, how to hack back the external triggers, and how to prevent distraction with packs. So there's a lot more in this book as well that we didn't get to yet.
1: Yeah. Well, well, it's it's intriguing to think that you could become fascinated by something that you previously were not fascinated by. And I guess you do so by focusing more intently, finding the mystery.
2: And it's such a superpower.
1: If you think about it, right? What if
2: you could do that? Wouldn't that be amazing? Like, what if you could make all sorts of tasks that are currently drudgery to you into something that actually holds your attention, right? To me, that's just such a superpower as is becoming indistractable itself.
1: Right. And I guess it might help if you could maybe do a little bit of modeling of, of other people in terms of, you know, why is it you're fascinated by knitting? And then they point to you point out some things that you never noticed or thought of. You go, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I almost mm-hmm. like get a head start if you're just really clueless about where to get going there. Well, well in, in our final minutes, I think there's a couple of things we need to cover. One, uh, did you ever get the answer on your daughter's preferred superpower? Yeah. So interestingly
2: enough, I went back to her as I was writing the book and I I actually was giving my first talk. Uh, The book wasn't finished yet, but I was asked to give a talk on, on, you know, what am I working on these days? And so I decided to share some of the early findings from Indistractable. And I know my answer. My answer was, of course, I would want the superpower to become indistractable. I would want the power to always do what I say I'm going to do, uh, to strive to have personal integrity. It doesn't mean I'll never get distracted, right? Being indistractable does not mean you never get distracted. It means you strive to do what you say you're going to do. But then I asked her, I sat down with her and I said, uh, you know, I'm really sorry. I didn't listen to what you said last time. Uh, I apologize. Can you tell me what your superpower would be? Because I'm going to give this talk and I'm really curious to hear what your answer would be. And honest to God, this is what she said. She said she would want the power to always be kind. That's oh, what she said. Lovely. <laughs> and of course, I, you know, I wiped my eyes and, you know, I, I, I gave her a big hug because I was expecting her to say, you know, fly or be invisible. I don't know. But she said to always be kind. And I just thought that was so perfect because the fact is that being kind is not really a superpower. We all can be kind, can't we? Right. It's not like some you don't need to be born on some, you know, alien planet to have this power. Anybody can be kind. And the same goes for being indistractable. And that's the message I really want people to hear with this book is that when you understand the root causes of distraction and you understand the techniques and strategies to manage distraction, anyone can have this superpower. Anyone can become indistractable. Beautiful. Thank you.
1: Now, could you share with us a a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: Here's one of my favorite quotes by William James. It's the art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook. And I I think that's a really fantastic quote because what I found in my years of researching the psychology of distraction is that understanding distraction is an underutilized trait. It's an underutilized skill because it's not good enough to just know what we should do right? That's not good enough is to know what to do. It's also about knowing what we should not do. How do we keep ourselves from getting distracted? Because at the end of the day, we all know big picture what we should do in our day, what we know, how to get fit, how to have a better relationship, big picture, we know the answers. And yet, we don't do them, right? Why don't we do these things? So I think this is a great quote, The, the art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook what we shouldn't do what we should not get distracted from.
1: And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: Yeah. So I think the challenge that I would ask people to consider is what is taking you off track? You know, maybe, maybe just keep, I can actually give your, your listeners a tool, a distraction tracker that I would challenge them to simply keep track without judging, right? Without beating yourself up with being kind to yourself, the way you would be kind to a friend. What is it that is taking you off track in your day when you plan to do one thing What are those things that that distract you? And just keeping that log, just keeping that record and understanding that there are only three types of things that can take you off track. Either it was an external trigger, an internal trigger or a planning problem can help you start to categorize and then effectively manage these distractions in your life so that that you can make sure that you can use these technologies to empower you as opposed to, you know, being a slave to them, for example.
1: Well, Nir, thank you. This was fun. And I wish you all the luck in the world as you pursue your superpower here of (laughs) perfect integrity. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I think the thing that stuck with me the most from this conversation with Nier was how he mentioned that willpower is not a resource that's depleted, but rather an emotion. And can you really deplete an emotion? And that just really got me thinking in terms of if I compare willpower to, say, my strength during a strength training session, like I can observe, okay, I am able to do six pull-ups in my first set. And then my second set, it's maybe like four. And then my next set, it's maybe like three or two. I could really see that being depleted in terms of the strength I have in my back and arms and shoulders to execute that pull-up. And if any of you are shaming me for six pull-ups, you know, it used to be better. It's gonna get back, hashtag, Two kids under two. Anywho, so that's strength. I could really see it depleted quantitatively, and yet as I reflect on my experience of willpower, I've had some days where my willpower is kicking for hour after hour after hour, and other days that it is not. Making me think that I think Nears on the right track with regard to this depletion concept and how, if I think about it more like an emotion and what it takes to to summon and revisit emotions, then I can tap into more willpower just the way I could tap into more compassion, if I'm really trying, you know, or any other emotion that I'm after. So really thought-provoking stuff from Nir. I appreciated that. The show notes, the transcript, the links to albums we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F483. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, Dean Carroll. Dean is talking about mastering the basics and what kind of a huge difference that can make in your career. And if you need another show to listen to because you just can't wait that long for Dean, I recommend you check out the Lead to Read podcast. I heard the host, Jeff Brown, first speak at Podcast Movement a couple years ago, and, and he really brought it in terms of the quality. And he said that his mission each week is to make a show that's even better than he's ever made before. And and you can really hear that commitment to excellence in terms of the quality of each of the episodes. And his thing, as you might imagine, read to lead is talking to some of the brightest minds, the nonfiction authors who have a lot of good stuff to share. So We've had a number of overlapping guest authors between us, and he's got a lot of other folks that you haven't heard of yet. So you can think of it as like an audio Cliff's Notes version to get the goods from those books zippily in a fun, engaging way, because Jeff is a great interviewer. I know many of you are already listening based upon iTunes saying listeners also subscribe to. I see we have a little bit of overlap there, which is cool. But if you haven't, you may well wish to check him out. Until next time. Peace.